Has anyone looked up the definition of Christian in a dictionary recently? I recently looked it up on dictionary.com and found some rather interesting definitions of what Christian or Christianity is. There's two types of way you can use it. You can, be, you can use it as an adjective or you can use it as a noun. The uses in the adjective are, the first is, of, pertaining to, are derived from Jesus Christ or his teachings. The second way you can use it is, of, pertaining to, believing in, or belonging to the religion based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the third way you can use it is, exhibiting a spirit proper to a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ-like. Now, the noun uses are somewhat similar. The first being a person who believes in Jesus Christ, adherent of Christianity. And then the second being um, a person who exemplifies in his or her life the teachings of Christ. Now, both of these uses deal with following Christ, believing in him and belonging to a group. But today I want to say to you, there's a little bit more. There's something missing in these definitions. Now today, we're going to look at three different types of Christianity. Now I don't mean denominations or certain belief systems out there relating to Christianity. I mean three different ways someone can live as a Christian, or someone who calls them a Christian can turn out. As you can imagine, a couple of them, though, won't quite hit the mark of what it means. Now, the three types we're going to look at is impulsive Christianity, pulse Christianity, and impulse, with, a, uh, with parentheses around pulse. Now, though the, scene, though the three kind of sound similar, they couldn't be further from each other. Now, the first we're going to look at is impulsive Christianity, or the impulsive Christian. Now, I imagine you're all asking yourself a question, and what does all this mean? Well, I'm really glad you asked yourself that. The impulse of Christian is one who believes in Jesus, but when it comes to giving him them, giving him them all, their all, they fall terribly short. They want to be able to do it. They want to be able to give Jesus everything, but they just can't. A great example of this would be Luke 18, 18 to 23. If you all will read along with me. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, what is it that this man, what is it that makes him an impulse Christian? Let's kind of look at what happens in the scripture. First of all, in verses 18 and 19, there's a glean of how the man views Jesus. He calls Jesus good. And Jesus replies, only God is good. That gives us an indication that this man believed Jesus was God. In verses 20 and 21, 
Jesus asks the man if he's kept the commandments. And the man replies that he has, very truthfully. This implies that he's faithful to God. The problem, though, only arises when Jesus shows what the man lacks. Here's where we really need to pay attention. The man, first of all, is not giving any of his time to the work of the Lord. That is, selling everything and giving to the poor. And secondly, he clearly isn't following Jesus since Jesus says, come, follow me. Now that we've got an idea of how the man wasn't quite on the mark, how can we really apply that to today? Now I want you all to imagine something with me. Imagine you're, you're an athlete. But you're not just any run-of-the-mill athlete. You're one that has hopes and dreams of being an Olympic athlete. I mean, we all watch him on TV, the Olympians. Man, that would be some cool stuff. Now, all of your life, you've been training, you've been working hard, you've been going above and beyond in whatever sport it is that you'd want to be an Olympic athlete in to prove just that you have what it takes to be an Olympian. Now, as you train harder and as you compete more, you get noticed by a few companies and they decide to give you a sponsorship. One of them, though, is a company that the Olympic Committee might not find very ethical. But this company is paying you, literally paying all your expenses to be a full-time athlete. Now, in one of your training sessions, an Olympic, US, United States Olympic team representative sees you and wants you on the team. But... In order to be on the team, you have to drop that one sponsor who's paying for everything. What, what would you do? Would you give up that sponsor or not? That's a really hard choice. I mean, the sponsor's paying for everything, and you really won't have much of an income if you join the team. It's an easy trap, though, you see, to be an impulsive Christian. It's an easy trap just to stay knowing, wanting to do something, but not. You can believe in Christ, no doubt, but you just get too comfortable staying at that. Now we're going to look at a pulse Christian. What is this pulse Christian? This is one who's so in tune with Scripture and theology that they miss the real deal of Christianity. They, in fact, in history, if you look back, they miss the Messiah entirely. There are many examples of this all over the New Testament, all over the Gospels, but I'm going to specifically focus on the Pharisees and how they treated Jesus. Some examples of this, turning to Matthew 9, verses 2 through 4. Some men brought him to a paralytic. That some men bring this, they're bringing this man to Jesus, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said, this fellow is blaspheming. It's interesting that those, those who knew the Scriptures so well, knew the prophecies so well, was, were calling Jesus a blasphemer. Now, if you flip a few pages to the right to Matthew 12, in verses 22 through 24, it states, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But here's the good part. But when the Pharisees heard this, 
They said, it is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So again, those who knew the scriptures right here, they're calling Jesus a servant of Satan. Now flip a few more pages to the right to Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they will hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Again, we have the people who are so in tune with Scripture questioning Jesus, questioning His authority. Those are just three of the accounts where Jesus was questioned. But what about after He ascended? What about after He was gone when it was just the apostles left? There's another incident where, there, where, the, new, where the new Christians are questioned by the Pharisees, but there's a minor change. Now, the scripture I'm about to read takes place within the book of Acts, and it's just, just prior to it, the apostles were performing many miracles under empowerment by the Holy Spirit and empowerment by Jesus. They had gone into the temple grounds preaching Christ, and then the Pharisees imprisoned them. Now, God being awesome set them free. So, they're in the temple courts. The Pharisees catch on to this. They come to the apostles and bring them in and basically ask them, why are you guys doing this when we told you not to? So, we're going to pick up in Acts 5, 34 through 39. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up before the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. He's basically saying, put the apostles outside so we can talk, guys. Then he addressed them. He addressed the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him... Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. So this, this teacher of the law basically says, hey guys, hold up. If this is really from God, then let them, you know, you can't stop it. But if it's from men, they're going to be wiped out. 
So how do we kind of put these three scriptures together? Or four scriptures. Very simply, the educated back in Old Testament times, that is, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the teachers of the law had gotten it wrong. They were so dead set on their vision of the Messiah as a military commander, not as Jesus himself, was so wrong that they missed the real Messiah. Now that we have kind of an idea of what a, what a post-Christian is, or would have looked like in history, how do, we, how do we compare that to present day? Well, I want you to go back to that imagining you're an Olympic athlete. Only this time, you're, you're not spent training. You, you don't spend your time training at your sport, or trying to become the best you can. Instead, you just know all the intricacies of the sport, you know how the point system works. You know all the stats of every great player. You know all the moves of every great player, but you don't actually practice them. So you've missed the, you've missed the event. You've missed the Olympics just because you did not practice. You didn't train. When you're a pulse Christian, all your knowledge about, Christ, about the Christian faith is all but meaningless because you're missing that great event that God has planned for your life. Now we're going to look at the third and final type of, of the Christian. And this is the impulse Christian. Being M and then pulse in parentheses. Now again, we have the question, what is this impulse Christian? Well, very simply, this is one who knows the Scriptures well, follows Jesus wherever he leads, and digs into the work of the Lord. Now obviously, Jesus himself would be the ultimate example of this impulse Christian. Um, and we're going to see how. I want you to go to Luke chapter 2, and we will look at one of these occasions. This is an occasion that proved he knew the Scriptures well. Luke chapter 2, verses 46 through 47, shows just how in tune with Scripture Jesus was. Now, I want you to keep in mind as you're reading, this, is, this happens when Jesus is 12 years old on a family trip to the temple for Passover. Now it says, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. So these are guys, he, he's in the temple talking to guys who have been studying scriptures their entire lives, and he's, he's amazing them with how much he knows at 12 years old. Now also, when you look, in, look at when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, Every time Jesus is tempted, he replies with a scripture. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to and uses scripture to defend what he's doing or to show the Pharisees or others where they're messing up. He also performed many miracles, not for the sake of it just being a miracle, but for the saving of the particular person's soul or for a chance to preach to a large-scale audience. Jesus was the kind of guy that was never afraid to get his hands caked with the dirt of human existence, just so he would have a chance to save us all. Now, beyond Jesus, what about the disciples themselves? These guys, after all they went through, they're still great impulse Christian examples. These guys followed Jesus wherever he went. They learned a lot from him, and later on they ended up building the foundations of our church. Now, a great scripture in Acts that kind of demonstrates this would be found in Acts 3. Go ahead and shuffle there. 
This is uh, verses 1 through 10. One day, Peter and John were going to the, up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So this guy hasn't been able to walk his entire life, and his whole existence has been him being dragged in front of this gate. They drop him off, and he begs. That's his existence. Now, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, as a new beggar would in that time. But Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man's looking at Peter and John right now. They've got his attention. And I love the, the, what Peter says. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Okay, so think about what just happened. This guy's begging for money, and the dis- two of the disciples walk up. They don't have any money on them, and they get this, this guy the ability to walk through Jesus. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now imagine some of these people in the temple who had heard about Jesus was watching this guy and it's like, well, you know, only one guy has really done something like this before and that was Jesus. Now, the apostles gave the men ability to walk again, but more importantly, they opened up in this guy the chance for him to become a Christian. They had healed him physically, which enabled them to work on him spiritually. Now, also, the early church is a great model of impulse Christianity. Go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 4, just a few pages to the right, verses 32 to 35. All the believers were, in, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owed lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So think about that. As a body, they gave their funds. If someone needed something in the early church, it was taken care of. If someone needed a place to stay, they would stay at a brother's house or a sister's house. If someone needed money or food, it was provided by the church. Now, how can we kind of equate that to today, though? How can we really make sense of this? Now, once again, I want you to go back to that Olympic hopeful. Only this time, I want you, uh, there's something different that happens. Just as in the first time, though, all your life you have been training, going above and beyond in your sport to prove you have, have what it takes to be an Olympian. And again, as you train hard, you get noticed by one of the Olympic officials, and they decide to ask you on. And as before, you get noticed by companies and they decide to sponsor you. But just as in the post-Christian, you know every statistic of every player, you know all the great moves, and you can do them well. 
But this time, when the official asks you to give up that sponsor, you do. And you go and fulfill your dream of being that Olympic competitor. Now, when you do that, being on this Olympic team, it takes your skill to a whole other level that you never imagined. It lets you experience things you never imagined you could. And you didn't miss the main event. You didn't miss the Olympics. Now, I have a question for you guys, and that is, have you been an impulse Christian lately? Have you been willing to give your all and follow Christ completely? I want to say to you guys today, live as an impulse Christian. So what does that mean, though, to all of us as a whole? Let's go back to the definitions of Christianity we heard in the very beginning of our time together. And let's, you know, that thing that was lacking... That thing means there's more to just being a Christian than that definition. It means we must believe in Jesus and exemplify his teachings, yes. But to break it down further, as Christians, we kind of float between these three. We float between impulse, pulse, and impulsive. That's, you know, that's how life is. Some days we just want to sit on the sidelines. And like the impulsive Christian, we want so desperately to get out there, follow Jesus all the way. But when it comes to getting our hands dirty in, the, in His work, we don't want to do it. Now, some days, you know, we're, we're just fine with that. Just sitting there, enjoying ourselves. But we're missing the point. Some days we're also, you know, we know all about this Christianity, but we don't want to act on it. We're just fine with, with knowing and, and not doing But I want to say that's not how we're called to live as a Christian. We're called to be the impulse Christian every day. We're to be following Jesus without delay. We're to be doing his work. We're to be using the scripture as it intended to be used. That is a sort of truth. And we're called to live in Christ. Now how can we be that sort of impulse Christian all the time? The the easiest way to simplify it is do the best we can and constantly ask Christ to help us when we falter. I know that's kind of oversimplifying it, but it really is that simple. Now, if you all remember one thing today, it should be live every day as an impulse Christian. 